Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters 18 through 20. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Seeking Truth today in our discussion of David and the Psalms. We're doing 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 20 today in conjunction with Psalm 59. Well, last week we saw David slay the giant. That big old Goliath went down. And our theme was when battling giants, let the Lord fight for you. Today's theme is best friends forever. Best friends forever. I love my BFF, right? We're going to have best friends forever. A beautiful example of that today in David and Jonathan and their covenant friendship, their covenant relationship with the Lord. We do not understand friendship today like the ancients did. That's for sure. Because in an individualistic society, in a self-centered, self-reliant society, we don't know that level of friendship anymore. Anymore. We think we have friends on Facebook. We're Facebook friends. That's a really deep, deep friendship, isn't it? Uh, you can have up to 5,000 friends on Facebook, then they cut you off. You, have, you can't have more than 5,000 friends, but these are not 5,000 of your truest friends. These are 5,000 people getting fed the same algorithms behind the scenes that you are. And Facebook has been in the news a lot lately. Frances Haugen, our neighbor born in Iowa City, got her master's degree in business administration at Harvard, and she has taken on a very mighty giant. She is fighting against Facebook. She's an American data engineer and data scientist, and she has taken on a giant. What is her armor? She is armed with tens of thousands of Facebook's internal documents, and she is bringing Facebook into the light as well as other social media that they've bought up, Instagram and WhatsApp and others. And on October 5th this year, 221, she testified before the United States Senate, the Commerce Committee's Subcommittee and Consumer Protection Product Safety Data Security Branch. And Senator Blumenthal gave a very sharply worded letter from to the Facebook founder saying parents across America are deeply disturbed by ongoing reports that Facebook knows that Instagram can cause destructive and lasting harms to many teens and children, especially their mental health and well-being. Those parents and the 20 million teens that use your application have a right to know the truth about the safety of Instagram and others. Frances Haugen said in the end, the buck stops with Mark Zuckerberg. In her testimony, she said there is no one currently holding Mark accountable but himself. He owns over 51% of the company. He's Facebook's CEO, and he has a lot of power for a 37-year-old male. He is worth $121.6 billion. And when she came forward with her testimony, his stock fell $6 billion that day. She has taken on a very mighty giant indeed. Zuckerberg was well, uh, has well over 43 million followers. He can only have 5,000 friends though. But they are not true friends. Again, they are being fed the same algorithms behind the scene, behind the interfacing. And it's dividing our nation, dividing our church. It's a tactic that the evil one loves. He is very, very fond of division. His name is Diablo. 
the divided one. He loves to divide. Truth is unity. Satan is division. And he's dividing us. And people don't even see it happening. And they think it's the best thing on earth. They have so many friends. Let's look at some other views on friendship. This is an anonymous quote. Good friends are like stars. You don't always see them, but you know they're always there. A good friend is like a four-leaf clover. Hard to find and lucky to have. Socrates said, be slow to fall into friendship, but when you are in it, continue firm and constant. St. Jerome said, true friendship ought never conceal what it thinks. You ought to be able to speak your mind truly with a friend. Jean de Fontaine, rare as true love is, true friendship is even rarer. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the only way to have a friend is to be one. Helen Keller said, I would rather walk with a friend in the dark than alone in the light. Jane Austen, friendship is certainly the finest balm for the pangs of disappointed love. Walter Winchell said, a real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, many people will walk in and out of your life, but only true friends will leave footprints in your heart. Now, Winnie the Pooh had many friends. His best friend was Christopher Robin. And he said, if you live to be a hundred, then I hope that I will live to be a hundred minus one day so that I never, ever have to live without you. St. Thomas Aquinas said, there is nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. So true friendship is a very godly pursuit. True friendship cares about the eternal soul of the other as much as their own soul. There has to be a godly element to true friendship. Aristotle said, wishing to be friends is quick work, but friendship is a slow ripening fruit. And Aristotle said, to be a friend with someone, you must eat a sack of salt together. What did he mean by that? He meant you have to share that many meals together that you would have a whole bucket of salt or a whole bag of salt before someone's a true friend. True friendship progresses slowly. Aristotle said friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. A single soul dwelling in two bodies. Hmm, I wonder where he got that. From our scripture today, 1 Samuel 18, 2, which was written before Aristotle, that said the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Aristotle stole that. Friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. It's called a covenant friendship, and God is involved. Best friends forever in the Lord. Friendship is godly. Jonathan and David today were very, very, very good friends. They had a covenant friendship. If we look at the book of Sirach, at our 73 Bible books, our Catholic Bible books, if we take the wisdom poetry section and we pull out the book of Sirach, this is what Sirach chapter 6 says about friendship. A pleasant voice multiplies friends, and a gracious tongue multiplies courtesies. Let those that are at peace with you be many, but let your advisors be one in a thousand. When you gain a friend, gain him through testing, and do not trust him hastily. For there is a friend who is such at his own convenience, but will not stand by you in your day of trouble. Friends, quote, you know, friends, fair weather friends that run at the first sight of rain, but true friends bring you an umbrella and hunker down with you until the storm is over. Fair weather friends change with the wind. Back to Sirach 6, there is a friend who changes into an enemy and will disclose a quarrel to your disgrace. Jesus had a friend like that, a friend who changes into an enemy, the Judas kiss of a dear friend. 
Sirach 6 verse 10 says, there is a friend who's a table companion, but will not stand by you in your day of trouble. Oh, they'll eat with you. They'll come over for dinner. They'll share a meal. A friend who's a table companion, but will not stand by you in day of trouble. None of those guys stood by Jesus in his day of trouble. The only one at the foot of the cross was John, the youngest, the beloved disciple. They all shared a meal, the last supper, but the only one who stayed was the one who rested his head on his chest, the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved. Sirach 6:11. in your prosperity, he will make himself your equal. When everything's going good for you and you're rich, oh yeah, he wants to be in on it. But be bold with your servants. If you are brought low, he will turn against you and will hide himself from your presence. He'll stab you in the back when things are bad. Keep yourself far from your enemies and be on guard toward your friends. Jesus had to stay a distance from the Pharisees. He called them out for what they were. A faithful friend is a sturdy shelter. He who has found one has found a treasure. There is nothing so precious as a faithful friend, and no scales can measure his or her excellence. A faithful friend is the elixir of life, and those who fear the Lord will find him. See, the Lord has to be in friendship. Those who fear the Lord will find godly friends who also fear the Lord. Whoever fears the Lord directs his friendship aright, for as he is, so his neighbor also. So true friendship, the highest form, is godly friendship. Sirach 6 promises for those who fear the Lord, the Lord will find him a faithful friend. That's what happened for David. And that's what happened for Jonathan today. They both feared the Lord. They both trusted the Lord's word and they will become forever friends, best friends forever. Whoever fears the Lord directs his friendship aright. For as he is, so is his neighbor also. Both friends fear the Lord and that's an anchor for their friendship. Both trust in God's word, both obey God's word. David and Jonathan, best friends forever. Now you see this picture of friends and you see Jesus or the Lord there. A covenantal friendship has God first and then the friend. So first you trust God and in conjunction, you trust your friend who also trusts God. Those are the best friendships. Proverbs 23 says, iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. Godly friends sharpen each other. They both know the word of the Lord and they call each other on to excellence. Godly friends care about the salvation of each other's soul. If your friends in trouble are going in direction of a mortal sin, you say, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Rethink that. That puts your soul at risk. Don't do that. I love you. I care about you. Godly friends want to spend eternity together. I want you in heaven with me forever. We're best friends. How long? Forever, for all eternity. Eternal friends, forever friends. Last week, we saw the genius Michelangelo and his statue of David. It was commissioned by Pope Julius II. He commissioned Michelangelo to go on and do the Sistine Chapel, but he also hired a young artist named Raphael to paint some frescoes for him. Raphael was in his mid-20s, and Pope Julius II hired him. He painted this painting of Pope Julius II, and after the Pope died, they said that this painting was so lifelike that it frightened anyone who saw it, like the man was living himself. And uh, he hired Michelangelo to do the Sistine Chapel and, and 
to remodel St. Peter's Basilica, and he commissioned Raphael to do the four large Raphael rooms in the Vatican. Michelangelo was one year into the Sistine Chapel. He was busy painting, and young Raphael is called to do the Vatican rooms. I want to show you that often the Italian artists would put their own Italian people in the paintings. For instance, Pope Julius, his face Michelangelo put on Zachariah in the uh, Sistine Chapel. If you ever go to the Vatican art museums, don't miss the Raphael rooms because they are magnificent and a lot of people miss them. This is the room, the first room that Raphael started with. And it's called the Stanza della Signatura, which means the room of the signature. And this is where the Pope would sign all the church's most significant documents. And so he wanted a beautiful room. And it was also his personal library and the place where the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura would meet, which is the most powerful judicial body in the Catholic Church. So the Raphael rooms that he commissioned, this one room has four big walls, and Raphael was to paint on all four walls. And he was told to represent the three greatest categories of the human spirit, which are truth, goodness, and beauty. And so he started with the highest supernatural truth, and it's called the disputation of the most holy sacrament, and it's the discussion of theology. But you can see if we zoom in, it's the Eucharist. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then the Eucharist on the altar. And that's the focal point of the painting. It's the communion of saints on the top realm, and then the church militant on the bottom ground that's still fighting on earth to make it to heaven, to be in the communion of the saints with the Trinity. On the other wall, he illustrated the good. The good was seen in the cardinal virtues and in the law, fortitude, prudence, temperance. And then the third wall was to show beauty. And so Raphael painted Apollo and the Muses, which was in uh, Greek literature that was beautiful. And the frescoes on the ceiling were all interconnected to the scenes, but his greatest work in that room, many feel, is the School of Athens. And many of you know this, and in this painting he was trying to show rational truth represented by philosophy. And of that, the Greeks had really brought us philosophy, the love of wisdom. And of course, the fear of the Lord begins with wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so Raphael painted these rooms showing the supernatural truth revealed by God himself through Jesus, the highest supernatural truth. And he left no notes. He died at an early age. He left no notes describing this work. But we know that the focal point is Plato and Aristotle, his student Aristotle. All the characters are Greeks, but interestingly enough, Raphael painted Italian faces on them. Rome, Italy, Rome was now ruling as the world power over Greece. But Plato was the Athenian philosopher, the Greek philosopher. He was schooled by Socrates, and his student will be Aristotle. And Raphael painted the face of Leonardo da Vinci, the Italian artist, over the face of Plato. I mean, his Plato is Leonardo da Vinci. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting that he did this. At the bottom, that's supposed to be the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, but he painted Michelangelo's face on him, the Italian artist. So the Greeks are being taken over by the beauty of Italian art. So 
all these truths are coming together. Plato is pointing up, he's holding a copy of his work, Timaeus, and his student Aristotle is holding his 10 volume installment on ethics. And Plato is pointing up, whereas Aristotle is reaching out, pointing out, and Aristotle will do a lot of writing on friendship. In his ethic book, 10 volume ethic book, a whole unit of it is attributed to friendship. And this is what Aristotle noticed, that there's accidental friendship and there's intentional friendship. And accidental friendship, the lowest one is utility. And that's like somebody you work with or someone you take a class with. They're friends by what you're doing. You benefit from one another. Or it's a shallow friendship. It can be dissolved easily. But it's based on something that's brought to the relationship by the other person. Whereas the second type of friendship is also accidental, but it's pleasure-based. So that's, you're drawn together. Maybe you're attracted to someone's wit, their good looks, their pleasant qualities. And maybe there's something pleasurable you like to do together. Like this could be your drinking buddies in college, or, you know, it's that kind of friendship that there's something pleasurable you do together. But it also is not long lasting because when your situation changes, oh, you were friends with those soccer moms when your kids played on that team, but now they're on an another team and those soccer moms aren't your friends anymore. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's based on pleasure. Then the highest level of friendship is called intentional friendship and it's based on virtue and it's based on mutual appreciation of character. And Aristotle writes that it's where both people admire one another's goodness and you strive with that friend. You choose that friend because they call you higher. You're striving for goodness and they're striving for goodness and you're both trying to live virtuous lives. And he says this type of friendship is the highest level of philia, the highest level of love, and it's called brotherly love or sisterly love. And Aristotle says, perfect friendship is the friendship of men who are good and alike in excellence. For those wish well alike to each other, quo good, and they are good in themselves. This is what Jonathan and David had, and even more, because theirs is based in the Lord. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. So we don't understand friendship like the ancients did, but we're trying. We're trying today, and we're trying to understand how these two men could be best friends forever. When we left off last week in 1 Samuel 17, we saw that David had slaughtered Goliath. He had cut off the head of the giant with the giant's own sword and brought it to Saul. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And now we start chapter 1 Samuel 18. When he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And Saul took David that day. Saul took David that day and would no longer let him return to his father's household. So he can no longer go home to Jesse and his brothers. Now remember, you have to remember back in 1 Samuel 8, when the people said, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations. And, and the Lord says, Samuel, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But make sure you tell them what will happen if they get a king. We want a king. We want a king. We don't care what happens. We want a king. We want a king. The people want a king. And Samuel says, okay, here's what the king's going to do. If you have a king who reigns over you, he's going to take your sons and he's going to anoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And that is exactly what has happened now. Jesse's first three sons were already in war in service to King Saul and his army. And now little David, the youngest, is going to be taken by King Saul, just like the Lord said. 
Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved his own soul. So now David, who's been taken away from all seven of his own brothers, is finding a new brotherly love with Jonathan, who is the son of King Saul, but David has to live at the house of King Saul. And they are going to make a covenant today. And it is a covenant bond, it's a covenant friendship, it's a covenant relationship because God is involved. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David. He gave him his armor, he gave him his sword, he gave him his bow, he gave him his girdle. Now, we think, what is going on? Well. In a kingdom, who's next in line for the throne? All the nations around them were kingdoms. And if the king dies, who gets the throne next? The oldest son. Jonathan is stripping off all royal claims to the throne of the new kingdom of Israel and giving them to David. Remember, remember when Jonathan fought this battle? He was in those craggy rocks back in 1 Samuel 14, and he only had his little armor bearer with him. And he said, the Lord's going to work for us. There's nothing that can hinder the Lord. We can do this. And he goes up himself, Jonathan, in face of these Philistines that are coming at him, at least 20 or 25. And the armor bearer saying, are you sure? Maybe we should wait. And, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. The Lord's going to be with us. The Lord's going to be with us. So Jonathan, like David, is a man of the Lord. He trusts the Lord. And if you remember, they had a battle and Jonathan was successful and that threw everything into chaos. There was an earthquake and there was confusion and Saul comes with the other army members and, and, and Saul says, bring hither the ark of God, the ark of God. And there's just a lot of confusion. This was a few chapters ago. But if you remember, the Lord delivered Israel that day and Saul had put a curse on his men and said, if anyone eats before we win this battle, they will be cursed. And Jonathan didn't hear that curse. And Jonathan had just killed these 20 Philistines with his little armor bearer. And he comes into the forest and there's honey dripping from the trees. And he put his spear up and he starts eating the honey. And the people were like, ah! Jonathan, don't do it, don't do it. Your father put a curse, we cannot eat. And Jonathan thought that was ridiculous, remember? My father said that, if you men, you men needed the energy, you needed the honey to fight. Well, what happened after that battle, the people were so hungry that they took the booty from the Philistines, they took all their animals, they slaughtered them and they ate them with the blood in them. And according to the Lord and his word, you never eat the blood of the animal. That's why they would drain the blood out and make it kosher, right? Because the life of the animal was in the blood. So Saul had made the people fall into way greater sin by putting a curse on them. Saul was trying to play God and Saul was not God. And so they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord. They're eating meat with blood in it. And that was the day that was Saul's rash oath, and that was the day that Samuel said, you're no longer the one God wants in charge. You are no longer the king. God, God, God has something else in mind. He's going to take the kingdom from you, remember? Saul built an altar then to the Lord to repent. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. After all the people had drank all that blood in the meat, then he builds an altar. And then they offer sacrifice to the Lord. So which was worse, eating the honey that Jonathan ate or eating all that blood, which was worse to the Lord. Well, the curse wasn't from God, it was from Saul. So eating honey was fine because your words are like honey in my mouth, the psalmist says. 
and Jonathan is following God's word. Eating blood, Genesis says, you shall not eat flesh with blood, with its life. That is the blood. And Leviticus 17, for the life of every creature is in the blood. Its blood is the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of the very creature is in its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. So Saul has put all the Israelites in jeopardy that ate that blood. Jonathan, on the other hand, has eaten honey, and his eyes are enlightened. His eyes are brightened, some translation says. He sees what his father's doing, and he sees that his father is not of the Lord, like Samuel also sees. The honey is symbolic of he's eating the words of the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. He's following the Lord. He's doing what the Lord has asked them to do, whereas his father is leading the people astray. So I just bring back that story to remind you, we have to keep this all straight. Eating blood is directly disobeying the word of the Lord. And that's what Saul, King Saul, led his people to do. And the minute he did that, it was in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is saying this, I pray, pardon my sin, return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, Saul, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It was way back then in 1 Samuel 15 that the Lord took the kingship away. Samuel turned to go away and Saul laid hold of his skirt of his robe and he tore, he tore Samuel's coat. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Well, now we know who that little neighbor boy is, don't we? It's David, Jesse's eighth son, who just slayed Goliath the giant. And Jonathan has stripped himself of the robe. Jonathan knows it too. His eyes are enlightened, remember. He knows whose God's blessing is on. It's on David. He sees it with his own enlightened eyes. And he gives him his robe. And he's saying, the kingship is yours. I'm the firstborn son of Saul, but I see the Lord wants you. And I will obey the Lord. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And Saul sent him over men of war. Why did Saul do that? Saul sends him into every battle he possibly can. Why? We'll see. They're going to take your sons and they're going to appoint them to chariots. Check. And this was good in all the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David had impressed the women. David had impressed the men. David had impressed Saul's servants and David had impressed Saul's own son, Jonathan. Did David impress Saul? This kid is going to be the end of my reign. This kid is going to take over my throne. The forces of evil were swirling all about the household of Saul. This kid is going to be the end of my reign. Same thing Satan would have said. This kid's going to crush my head. I'm the prince of the world. This son of David threatens that. Can't you see Satan saying that of Jesus? It's the same dynamic going on here. I can't rest easy until this kid's dead. He's the prince of the world. Says it in John's gospel. Satan's the prince of the world and this kid's going to crush my head. He wants my kingdom. All the people love him. They want him to be king. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. We got to eliminate this guy. From birth forward, they thought he was a king. Kings from all over came to adulate this baby as king. He wants to devour him from the moment he was born, Revelation 12 says. Oh, how the spirits of evil work through King Herod, the Edomite puppet king of the Jews. 
So threatened was he about this new king on the scene that he ripped all baby males, three-year-old and younger, from the arms of their mothers and had them destroyed. David was earning the admiration and the adulation of all Saul's household, all the population of Israel loved David, and Saul is watching. And as they were coming home, David returned from slaying more Philistines. The women came out of the city of Israel. They were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with trimbles, t- uh, timbrels and songs of joy and instruments and music and the women sang. That was part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters 18 through 20, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.